Three, two, one, back in the room. What's happening, people? Welcome to yet another episode of An Idiot's Guide to Happiness. And this week, I am joined by the irrefutable. Why am I doing this silly voice? I don't know. But I quite enjoyed that. But anyway, I am joined by the uh, distinguished gentleman uh, and the uh, force majeure. And the one, the only, the undeniable Vernon Hunt. What's happening? Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me, Badgie. Um, No problem. Honoured to be amongst one of your first ever one-to-one interviews that you're doing. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, So, welcome uh, back, because you you were with me for the inaugural recordings Mm -hmm. of uh, An Idiot's Guide to Happiness. Which made me happy. Fantastic stuff. It certainly made me happy as well. We had a really interesting conversation. And I would just love to get a bit more in-depth in the journey of Vernon Hunt and um, how you have kind of made your way through uh, this crazy thing called life so far. Mm -hmm. You know, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Yeah. And certainly, you know, where your kind of uh, level of happiness uh, in life is at this point, (laughs) at this stage. And, you know, what we can or think of to try and help increase that or wow. even if if you're in a very happy place any advice that you can give to any listeners all right so we're gonna we're gonna get there all right this is nice this will be warm you know this will be friendly mm-hmm. um i'm not gonna um uh spring any surprising attacks on you i'm um, glad to hear I, you. I know you work in politics so you know you might be a bit wary <laughs> sometimes you know might be a bit cautious sometimes i'm sure but... it can't be as bad as working in politics well, I should certainly hope this interview would not be as bad as working in politics, definitely. So, um, anyway, thank you again. So, um, let's go with what you. So, you say you work in politics, so break it down for me. What, what exactly do you do? So, I'm a lobbyist, and uh, probably one of those common questions I'm asked actually is what is a lobbyist? What does he do? So, I'm, I'm very pleased to get that the way straight away. A lobbyist is basically. Um, a translator or a, a way of communicating between industry and organisations and government. So I don't work for government. A lobbyist doesn't work for government. A lobbyist helps an organisation uh, communicate to government. And that could include uh, writing letters or helping write reports for government attention or telling the right talk, sort of people to be speaking to. And currently, in my current role, I... Um, focus on science and technology so companies involved in the science and technology space okay so um as someone who's from the streets i'm talking about me <laughs> so am i <laughs> um, we grew up together <laughs> but no i mean like how did you get into the a job uh, like politi- like being mm. a lobbyist um, I've always had a, a real interest in politics and history. I, like from the very earliest stage of my life, in fact, one of my earliest memories was actually being home from school ill. I had a stomach ache or something, and I I turned on and they'd just recently started broadcasting Parliament on TV. Like they've only been filming in Parliament since about 1990, mm-hmm. and I thought it was the most amazing thing ever to see MPs sitting on green benches arguing about stuff for a job and trying to find out who was right and I thought that was amazing and I thought I want to be part of the guys on the green benches arguing back and forth and since then I was hooked really and uh, my my dad bought me some good history books which I just took to like a duck to water I loved reading the anthology of the 20th century and history and politics I mean politics is history happening now 
Um, uh, and in the future, this will be looked back at history. So I'll be I'll be part of that. So I just built up that interest. I took the right exams and I went to university and I studied politics and I worked in parliament. Then I worked for. What, a, what did you do in, in parliament? In parliament, um, they call the nickname for your job is a bag carrier. Really, you you work with uh, an MP. Um, and you uh, help them manage their offices, you write speeches, you do research for them on the issues they care about. The guy I was working for, Keith, he had a really big interest in immigration issues, for example, as well. So I did lots Keith of... Faz. Keith Faz. Keith okay. Faz. Uh, very, very passionate about immigration issues. Um, and also Europe, but of course that was before Brexit. So I did lots of research, arranging meetings, getting the right people in a room together. And uh, yeah... That, that was how I started out. So how did you go about getting that job? I'm just asking sure. if there's anyone who's interested in politics. It's so hard to get a job working for an MP. And I remember I just finished university. Actually, I'd, I'd done a master's as well. So I finished uh, my master's and I I must have smashed out about 80 applications in the month of August to different political jobs. And I didn't get a reply from about 70. Wow. I, yeah, and I got maybe nice letters back from 10, interviews of four, and out of the 70, 80 applications I made, I got one job, and that was the job. Okay. So uh, so how, how long did you do that for? Two years. I think it was two years, just over two years. Okay. Now, you you said that you've always been interested in politics for, you know, from a young age and so on. So mm. when you got that job, when you when you were working in that job, did you feel happy? Like yeah, you would do. Where you do you feel like you're doing something that you you kind of always wanted to do? I was shocked to the point of happiness. I was happy to the point of shocked because uh, I didn't expect to get what I wanted so quickly. And of course, I didn't really know what I wanted. I knew I wanted to work in politics in a broad sense, but working in Parliament is very badly paid. Usually, if you're starting out straight from university, and the hours are extremely long, the work mm-hmm. is very demanding. So it's very stressful as well to go from you know, university days to, mm-hmm. to that sort of lifestyle. So I was very drained and tired uh, and often stressed, but I was happy because I felt like, you know, I was doing what I wanted to do. The problem for me was, what did I do after that? Because you can work for an MP for 10, 20, 30 years, but really after two or three years, you should be looking to move on because there's not many places to go. Move on or move up? Uh, both. But sometimes the best way to move up is to move sideways and then like to just broaden out your base of skills. Uh, and then once you've got the right mix, you know, it's not often a straight path upwards in life. You need to get the right mix of skills at some fairly basic positions. And once you collect that, then you can move up. Um, so that's that's what was my approach. But I was, I was pretty lost back at the time. You know, I was only 24, uh, 25, and I knew when I wanted to stay working in politics. Then lobbying became the obvious, uh, the obvious answer because that's, a good way of getting reasonable money to do the job. And also, a really important point, after two years of working for an MP, it really put me off the idea of wanting to be an MP. Right, because I was going to say, because you, you, you kind of said you wanted to be an MP, basically, when mm-hmm. you saw you know Parliament mm-hmm. on TV, yep. you wanted to, to be there as well. Yeah, I had a very romantic idea of what being an MP was, you know, sort of like how people imagine what a doctor is, Mm -hmm. or just if you imagine being an astronaut at the age of eight, you imagine just getting in the rocket and flying off and Mm -hmm. having a great time landing on the moon and that. So obviously, if you, the closer you get to the dream, the more you realise what the negatives are as as much as the positives. And, And in this case, it was the fact that being an MP isn't immensely well remunerated uh, for the job, you have a lack of privacy, uh, the, and 
I don't know. It's also you have you don't actually have that much power, which I think a lot of people might find surprising. You, you know, you think of an MP as being a powerful individual, but really, uh, it, it's very dependent on the political environment. So if you are a government MP, you have more power than if you're not in a government MP. If you're friends of the Prime Minister, you might have more power. At the end of the day, you have to take orders much like anyone else. You are Being an MP is just a, sort of the bottom entry level uh, ecosystem. They can do great work for their constituents. They can make a real difference in campaigns and they can really uh, achieve many great things. But uh, it wasn't something that after seeing the sort of sausage factory, I thought that had me... Then again, I tell you this, Banji, if I had the opportunity to be an MP tomorrow, I wouldn't say no. Okay. It's just my career took me a different direction. Okay, so you did that for a couple of years, and then you moved into lobbying after that. Mm-hmm. And how did you get into the lobbying side of things? Um, once you work in Parliament for a couple of years, you uh, and you're you know you've got the right set, the right skills. You know, I was uh, sort of my mid twenties then. You're quite an attractive prospect to hire. Obviously, not because of the politics. But obviously, if you can work for an MP, then you can work for other people of the same sort of demands and, and stature. And it shows you can manage complicated projects. You know, it shows you can do and deliver. Because I think um, one of the things about politics is that a lot of people think it's about the ideas. The ideas, thank you. The ideas are very important. Um, but being able to deliver an idea, that's what makes you attractive in the at least the job market I was working in. It's great to have the ideas, but the ideas usually come from the top mm-hmm. and then they look for people that can deliver the idea. And I think after working for MP, uh, you have the knowledge of how politics works, but you also have the ability to deliver complicated programmes. Well, um, seeing as how you know this podcast is kind of available to an international audience and stuff, do you want to just give a brief... Uh, explanation of how the kind of British political system works. Oh my word! I say brief. Brief. (laughs) (laughs) That's that is such a brutal question. I'm oh god. Is it because you don't really have a clue, even though you've worked in it as well? No. I'm just saying from the outside, you know, from someone who's not involved in politics. May may I flip it around in that case because it will help me answer the question. If I understand how much you think uh, yourself or your audience might know about or believe the political system works. Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for the audience themselves, you know. Um, I don't know exactly what their experience is or what their knowledge base is. For me personally, um, I feel like the political system is not as... Um, it, I don't feel like it's as effective as it is, as it is kind of advertised to be, personally. Um I feel like there's way too many uh, sort of hidden agendas and, and other agendas at play. It'd be wonderful if I truly believe that all the, every MP that, that goes into Parliament or that enters that job truly wants you know their constituents to be as happy and healthy and provide services that they require and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think... I think while most might enter the job with those kinds of aspirations, I think I feel like the system is is a little bit too complex and a bit too complicated. And mm. what tends to happen is that, um, like you said, you know, there, there's a lot of um, 
there's a there's a lot of sort of delegation not delegation sorry there's a lot of deliberation and, and debating and all kind of, and that kind of thing that takes place and I feel like what happens with a lot of MPs and this is just my outsider's perspective uh, what happens with a lot of MPs is just they end up finding that it's easier to just go along with whatever agenda is going to because like you said as well they don't necessarily well they're not really well paid either um, I mean, what the the, mm. the prime minister gets is it was it officially think, forty grand a year or something like that? I think an MP gets around uh, sixty eight grand a year now, and the prime minister gets I think it's one hundred and forty thousand a year. Okay, so it's gone which, up. The last time I saw it, I know <laughs> I know sounds like a lot, but if you imagine they could leave Parliament and get employed by, by a company paying. Com- well, this is, and this is where I think a lot of the corruption comes into play, which is. Um, you know, companies and, and, you know, certain groups or organisations who want to have policies that benefit them directly. Mm. Um, and then there's a lot of, you know, which is why lobbyists tend to get a bad name and a bad rep as you, well. You're right. And I appreciate you know? the opportunity um, to correct the record as I see it. So let me, let, let me start with the fundamentals here. Um, I believe we have a good political system and it has some inherent flaws. I mean, all political systems do. Um, and in terms of corruption, yes, there is some corruption, but if you look at the research, and I can't quote it off, off by heart here, generally the, the British political system comes out to be as one of the least corrupt in the world. Admittedly, I'm not saying there are not problems. We see them reported weekly, and it can be very uh, disheartening, especially for someone like me that works in it. And one thing I'm really, really proud and uh, sort of dedicated to is you know ethical representation, ethical lobbying. I mean... Just like in any profession, in accountancy or the legal professions or banking, there should be a, a code, a framework to make sure people's behaviour isn't just legal, it's ethical. And I think that uh, there's lots you can say about that. But of course, good news doesn't sell. And that means in the papers and the TV, you're not going to hear about a story of you know, such and such lobbyists had a great campaign, it was really ethical, it was really above board, because that's the bare minimum of what you should expect. But you will hear about those that break the code, and that's what gets reported. Winston Churchill said that uh, democracy is the worst system except for the others, and I, I think that's that's true. Now, I'm of the left, you could say, mm-hmm. of the centre-left, so at times it can be very frustrating. I mean, we've had a Conservative <laughs> government for, for 10 years now. Yeah. So a lot of people ask me, how can you be a lobbyist if you're, if you're not conservative? And But the point of lobbying isn't that you're someone's best mate because you're a conservative or because or you necessarily identify with the philosophy of government. Being or, a, or whichever the ruling government is. Whichever the ruling government is. And of course, if you were conservative during the Labour years, it was a very similar problem. Being a lobbyist is about helping advise and represent people that have very legitimate asks, um, whatever they may be. Um, whether it's to ask for extra funding for scientific research or whether it's to ask for uh, a change in uh, government redistribution uh, for charitable purposes to help certain communities out there as well. There's many good causes, of course, and there's a big difference between uh, at one extreme uh, being a lobbyist for a tobacco company, and I think there should be lobbyists for tobacco companies, by the way, uh, and being a lobbyist for, say, Oxfam. You know, there's, there's a whole range there, just in the same way that you would you would hope that in a free society, someone accused of a crime, no matter how guilty you thought they were, no matter how guilty you thought they were, 
that they are entitled to a lawyer, to a defendant, because that's one of the reasons we have a free society, that everyone's entitled to representation. And as long as they obey the rules of the game, that's fine. Now, we had a question uh, about the political system as a whole and how I think it's worked. But before we do that, did you did you have any sort of comments on what I've just said there? Well, well just a follow-up question is how genuinely happy do you think people are in your field of work? Just your sense <laughs> of, you know, your sense, your feeling from the various individuals you've interacted with over the years. In, 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 in the world of politics or the world of lobbying, how genuinely happy do you feel people are? That's a fantastic question. Um... I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. I mean... Like I said, just your own per- yeah. personal perspective. But one, one thing about lobbying is that you have to represent the message you are trying to communicate in a strong and positive way. Now, does that... Is that regardless of whether you agree with the message or not? There are there are exceptions, like, for Are there example, times where you, you've had to kind of lobby for something that you I I, I haven't. I've been very with. fortunate, but also I've, co- I've chosen cautiously as well but i do know of other agencies which will say to their staff um an example being uh, a tobacco company would like us to work for them if any of you have a problem with that you don't have to be on this particular campaign uh, so there there are examples like that but there's very few and far between really um but there there is an understanding that there are some campaigns which your beliefs your personal beliefs are so far in opposition to what you would be paid to communicate that you couldn't be an effective sort of ambassador for that viewpoint. Okay. So, um, you got into the world of lobbying and so how long have you been lobbying now? Every day I'm lobbying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been lobbying uh, in one sense or another since, uh, let's see, 2008, I guess. But I've been working in government in one sense or another since 2000. Okay, so you've been in the field of, or around the field of politics for about 20 years? Yeah, I've seen a lot. Okay, and lobbying specifically in about 12 years? That's right. Okay, so considering you were, when you were younger, you really wanted to get into politics, that was something that would potentially make you happy, you know, that you felt when you were young, you, you, you followed the academic route to get into that field. Um, you got into that field, you only did it for, in terms of actual actual politics, mm-hmm. you only worked in that field for a couple of years, you wanted to gain more skills, you were happy but not, mm-hmm. um, is, that, is that fair to say, you were happy but, like initially you were happy but then when you kind of saw all the, not just the bells and whistles of the job but also, you know, all the, the, the um, uh, I, I think my job, chains and, and what, whips but. Working in something I care about hmm. is, uh. It's fantastic, and it makes me happy. They're not. That's not to say there's sometimes I don't get incredibly fed up with like what everyone else gets fed up when they see um, what appears to be politicians getting away with bad behaviour, and you're like, oh, I have to meet this guy in two weeks' time. This is this is not necessarily, but that happens in any industry. Like no matter what industry you work in, you could be having to deal with people who personally you would rather not be dealing with. I don't think that's particularly applies to politics. Um, I'm very lucky to work in, and also, although you could say I stopped being paid to work in politics when I stopped working for an MP, remember, politics isn't about getting paid to do it. There's an army of volunteers who knock on doors and attend events and political conferences, and they're the real people that make a political platform, political movement, you know, whether it's momentum, 
in the Labour Party, for an example, the Labour Party itself, or the Brexit Party and UKIP at the other end, it's the people who aren't getting paid who are the most involved in politics because they're doing it in their free time. So do you feel like um, more people should try and get involved at that sort of ground ground roots level? Mm. Um, because in terms of any actual change that may take place in society, that it will it stems from that, from when, if, if uh, politicians see that, I don't know, let's say 20,000 people have a particular cause that they want or a particular policy that they want implemented and stuff and they're kind of, you know, I don't know, whatever, mm. marching to yeah. to Whitehall and marching to Parliament what? and marching to Downing Street and stuff. 100%. And I think some of the most depressing things that have happened from my personal point of view, say Brexit, for example, have happened because more people have got involved in a campaign with more energy and more conviction to make Brexit happen than the other side. The other side only woke up when it was too late until the referendum was lost. And not to say there were not many great people working to stop Brexit, but there weren't enough at the end of the day. And they didn't convince enough people, 52 to 48%. That's the way it goes. Uh, most people don't care about politics, and I'm not saying everyone should get involved in the party. But if they do, if they do have an issue with society, if they do think it's unfair and it needs to be changed... And there's two options. You get involved, you get stuck in. At the very least, you vote. And at the very, very least, you vote and abstain. Fine, you turn up, you spoil your ballot because you don't like all the parties. That's fine. But if you don't do any of that and you stay at home on election day, then you're left with option B, which really makes me fed up. And option B is to complain and whinge and moan and say it's not fair. I, and then maybe maybe like lazily do a tweet from their, their <laughs> phone. <laughs> Uh, and think that's going to change the world. No, I mean, social media is a very powerful force, but at the end of the day, you need boots on the ground. And a few people can have a huge impact on the destiny of society. So, back to my point about, from my perspective, that politics doesn't really... Like, whoever you vote for, or... Um, in fact, just voting, in general, doesn't necessarily do anything doesn't have actually have the impact that I would like it to have, for example. So do you think I'm kind of talking nonsense when I say Yeah, that? I do. I do. I mean, look at when Theresa May almost lost election in 2017. She just about held it together because she had the Northern Irish MPs. There were 10 of them, the DUP. And she stayed in power for three years. If six or seven seats, instead of being Conservative, were Labour uh, or Lib Dem or any of the other parties, she wouldn't have been Prime Minister anymore. You wouldn't have had the Boris Johnson government. You wouldn't have had Brexit in the same way we were going to have Brexit. You might not have had Brexit at all. And how many votes made a difference in those seven seats? I don't know. It wouldn't have been many. Uh, a few thousand. You might be talking hundreds. And that would have changed the destiny of the nation. So it does matter. The problem with our political system, and this is why I do uh, sort of agree that things need to change, is that in some seats, as you know, we grew up in Westminster. Mm-hmm. Are just they've been conservative forever or they've been labor forever they're never going to change your vote might not make a difference because there are so many conservative people your vote might not make a difference but it still gets added up and it gets reported how many people as a total but the point is maybe a more fair representation system like they have in scotland and wales like they have in many parts of europe would be a better way of making your vote matter so give me the uh, explanation of that fairer sort of political system so, at one extent, you could have what's called pure proportional representation. 
So instead of having 650 little elections, there's 650 MPs, instead of having 650 little elections, you would have one single list for the whole country. And I'm taking it to extremes here. Mm -hmm. There's many, many forms and modifiers you could apply to this. And if Conservatives got 47% of the vote and Labour got 30%, Lib Dems 15%, then the Conservatives get 47% of the MPs, Labour get 30% so kind of, of direct the direct proportional... Direct proportional representation. Okay. And that would mean you wouldn't have a weird situation that we often have in this country where, in fact, I think we've had it every election except once, where a government has got less than a plurality or 50% of the vote, but has a vast or at least a significant majority in the House of Commons, which doesn't seem fair. If less than half the people vote for a party in this country, why should they get more than half the seats in the House of Commons? It sounds unfair to me. Yep. But then you've got different... Then you've got problems of proportional representation, which is in countries that have proportional representations, they have lots of small parties. It's endless horse trading. So you might go, I'm going to vote Labour. And uh, you then you find out Labour's done a deal with the Lib Dems, which means it's abandoned all the policy positions that you voted for, that made you vote Labour, so that the Lib Dems would go into a deal with government and uh, yeah, just take power. So you would lose more ability to keep track of what the parties got up to because they could say, well, actually, we wanted to do that. We wanted to do that so much, but, you know, we wanted to be a government as well, so we had to get rid of that. That's politics, though. That's human nature. That's that's Politics isn't just what happens in the House of Commons. Politics is a small group of friends. It's your workplace. It's every decision that's taken. Well... I mean, I don't feel like uh, politics, while I, you know, while I do concede that is it has helped in some, certain ways, and I always use the example of the NHS, for example, um, as my example for, okay, you could say politics works in, in certain ways where something is implemented that can benefit the majority of people. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, based on my almost 40 years of life experience um and also you know being born in in a different country and kind of growing up even though i was i came to england when i was eight mm -hmm. years old but having kind of delivered a different political experience and then coming to to the west and having this political experience over here i just feel like um politics mm. politics is kind of over overhyped as to how much positive impact it can have yeah. on individuals lives personally and i can i can appreciate that on the basis that if you're a person that's never got a break from the government ever and you you grow up in a bad background I'm not saying you have banji but if you're a person that's never had a break has a really bad life and you're like what's government ever done for me it's pointless every every uh, election i vote for the best party and then they never win and i never get any benefits so fine but I, I, I disagree with that on the basis. That one of my favourite Obama quotes, one of my favourite Obama, it's not his, he didn't come up with it, but he made it famous, was, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So that's like having a very flat line, which slowly, if you look at it over the very long term, bends. And I, I agree with that, because what were we doing, like, 2,000 years ago? We were crucifying people, you know? What we were doing a few hundred years ago, well... Uh, we were persecuting people for the wrong religion and uh, you could go on and we weren't allowing women to vote you know the slavery existed the reason all these things have been got rid of is politics it's pressure and it's not to say decisions at the top by the way i'm not saying like some prime minister woke up one day and said let's give women the vote 
I mean, women couldn't even vote to bring about women to have the vote, of course, but they had a fantastic campaign without having any sort of direct political voice in the system. And they got themselves a vote, which is an amazing thing. And that's like, that is incredibly new. Uh, but you have to see that grand historical sweep. And of course, history does go backwards as well. Like you, it, sometimes you have setbacks. I mean, some people say Brexit was a setback. Some people say election of Donald Trump was a huge setback, you know, taking us back to, <laughs> if not the 1950s, the 1850s. In or terms or of, possibly the Stone Age. It, it possibly <laughs> the Stone Age. Bit of a caveman. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think you have to believe in it because more than anything else, I mean, I believe it does work. But if you don't believe in it, you've got no plan B, unless you want to suddenly get a communist or a totalitarian of one nature or another, and you trust, put all faith in one man or woman at the top of the game making all the decisions on their own. Okay, well, we're going to take a brief uh, pause just because uh, I need to change the uh, recording file because this one is now <laughs> nice and full. So uh, hang tight, people, for part two of this beautiful conversation with Vernon Hunt. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>